Now read the text, uh, Genesis 29, verses 13 to 30. The word of God I preach to you this morning, Genesis 29, verses 13 to 30. Hear the word of God. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your youngest daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the first words that the first men and women heard God speak to them was that they united as one man and his wife must be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Shortly after receiving this command, Adam and Eve fell into sin. And people became proud, selfish, and deceitful. Even so, God promised that the Messiah who would conquer sin and Satan, the Messiah would be one of the believer's children. And an important distinction was made between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the promise. And so Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they all learned that the blessing of a promised Messiah would come through one of their descendants. And that meant that each of them would have to find a wife among those who believed in the same promise. 
That also meant that Satan would do everything he could to stop them. The context of the passage today makes us realize how important this quest for a godly wife was in God's plan of salvation at this time. You can see in chapter 24 that Abraham went to great distances and great expense to find a wife for his son Isaac among those who believed, among the seed of the women, the woman. Three times before our text, you can look at it, Genesis 26 verse 4, Genesis 27 verse 46, and Genesis 28 verse 8. Three times we read that Isaac and Rebekah were very upset that Esau had married Hittite women, that he had married someone from the descendants of the serpent. His parents, this was very distressing for them. And our text follows that, that contrast. You can see it in Genesis 28. We didn't really look at that last time, verses 8 and 9, but there's a, there's a contrast there, 6 to 9, between Esau who married an Ishmaelite wife from the descendants of Ishmael to please his parents, in addition to his existing Hittite women, and then Jacob, who was explicitly told not to marry a woman from the seed of the serpent, and then sent with God's blessings to find a wife from the family of God. It's the context, God's plan for the future of the church placed an obligation on the individuals. Every individual had to understand what God was doing. This obligation led 77-year-old Jacob to leave his family home in Beersheba and brought him to a well outside of Haran, surrounded by strangers and in the hope that Laban, his uncle, was still alive. Seems like well was a good place to meet women. And in God's providential care, Jacob is brought right to his uncle Laban's house where he is able to help take care of the sheep and he is able to get to know the girls from whom his father commanded him to find a wife. The way things are going it seems that it's relatively easy to obey God's command to marry a godly and believing wife. But then when we get to the verses of our text, starting already in verse 13, we are shocked by the blunt honesty about marriage in the line of the promise. And we see that it isn't all easy. And we see that sinners are asked to, to be joined to one another. And we see Jacob as a sinful human being staying in the home of his deceitful uncle where success is more important than people. Things don't go well. It's clear from our text that if God plans to use sinners in his plan to bring about the promised Messiah, they can be nothing more than instruments in his almighty and gracious hand or the world would never see a savior. Although Jacob's situation was unique and special in the history of redemption, and we live long after the Messiah's birth and his victory, as covenantal families and church of Jesus Christ, we can identify 
with the hardships of seeking and living in a godly marriage, the importance of these marriages for the future of the church, and the absolute and overwhelming comfort of knowing that Christ Jesus stands beside and behind us through the whole process. And I preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. God brings the church to the next generation through believers seeking godly marriage in a deceitful world. We will see that the seeker's grief is familiar, his goal is similar, the guarantee is the same. When we use the word grief, we mean sadness, but also trouble. Seeking a wife involves several people, several hearts, several different personal interests. There are many people involved in and behind the, the, the events of our text. And each part of the text reveals how the effects of the fall, the lies of the devil, the expectations of the world and the sinful desires of our heart make things difficult. It makes it difficult to obey the Lord's command to find a wife among his covenant children. The grief suffered by Jacob and his wives is familiar because it came from his family, came from within the line of the promised Messiah. But it's also familiar because the devil continues to exploit our fallen natures in an attempt to hinder obedience and the future of Christ's church. Our text reveals that the search for a godly husband or a godly wife is made difficult when people are selfish and forget to put the, the well-being of God's kingdom before their own well-being. Laban's attitude to his daughters was clearly stated, and you can look at it, Genesis 31. Genesis 31, verses 14b to, to 15. There, Leah and Rachel are talking about what happened in our text, and Jacob is saying, I need to leave Laban's house, and then they say, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what he paid for us. Rachel and Leah are referring to the text that we have before us today that end with Laban receiving 14 years of Jacob's service in exchange for one daughter, Rachel. And Laban may have been smirking as a father of two brides for the price of, of one and, and for the result of, of two. And he may have been smirking about how he deceived his nephew into working another seven years, but his daughters, his daughters who were created by God in his image, his daughters who were called to, to serve his kingdom as mothers of the next generation, they were not even treated as humans. For centuries now, the materialistic spirit has turned women into mere objects for men to play with. And it's not uncommon for us, even today, to forget that God's daughters are princesses in his kingdom. Our text shows that Laban had other things on his mind other than the well-being of his daughters. You could see that as we follow along verse 13. 
after hearing Jacob tell him his story and recognizing his gifts as a shepherd, that's what the first 12 verses of 29 show us. Then Laban took Jacob's side. He declared that he was his own flesh and blood. He offered to pay wages for Jacob's work. You see, Laban knew that Jacob had been commanded to travel these hundreds of kilometers and marry one of his daughters. And he knew that Jacob didn't have too many options because since the family of God was so far and few between, just like today when God commands us to to marry in the Lord, that command can put a certain pressure on us to marry certain people that can leave us vulnerable to deception. And even the great deceiver, Jacob, was outdone by his uncle Laban. He met his match. And then we've read what happens, how Laban throws a feast, and the word for feast here is, it actually speaks about a lot of drinking. It involves drinking. So he has a feast with drinking on the wedding night with all the men of the area invited to, to joy and party along. And then he takes the advantage, or he takes advantage of the custom for the bride to come into the wedding tent veiled. And then he gives Leah instead of Rachel to Jacob. And so the man who deceived his very own father by pretending to be the firstborn son, he is deceived by his uncle who sends his veiled firstborn daughter pretending to be the youngest daughter. And then Laban makes that point too. He makes the point perhaps that he didn't agree with what Jacob had done when he says the custom in our country is that we give priority to the firstborn. And although technically Laban never agreed with a simple yes to Jacob's offer to work seven years for Rachel, you can see that in verses 18 and 19. He doesn't say yes, he just says it's better for me, uh, for her to stay with you than, than some other man. Although he technically never agreed with a simple yes, and it is possible that Leah and Rachel were involved in the plot Laban sinned against Jacob when he misled him and betrayed him. And Laban sinned against both his daughters that he sold instead of protected. He was the father in his home. He was the head of the household. He had responsibilities to the children God placed in his care. But selfishness and materialism, greed and irresponsibility threaten to destroy the beautiful institution of marriage. And even today we see how complicated things can get. Sometimes it seems that if the Lord had not put the emotion of love and attraction in our hearts, if he didn't put that emotion of love that that attracts us to, to men and women to marry, it would be easier to avoid the whole process of seeking a husband or wife from anywhere. Seems like the redeeming characteristic of this chapter, right? We read of Jacob's love. It's refreshing to read of his love for the attractive sister, Rachel. And who will forget one of the most explicit statements about human love and perhaps even as husbands use it on our wives once in a while, 
So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Love is a gift from God that sweetens relationships. And often he uses beauty to awaken in us that feeling of love. We see that here in our text. But we also know that love, the word love, and the word beauty can mean a lot of different things. And when these words are perverted by sin, they actually contribute to the grief of relationships. It is quickly apparent that the beauty being described in Genesis 29 is not the spiritual, unfading beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit that we read about in 1 Peter 3. And it is clear that Leah was not called less attractive because she had a more rebellious spirit than her sister Rachel. Verse 17 tells us that Leah had weak eyes. And judging by the comparison with Rachel's beauty, her beauty in her form, we can see that this is not talking about Leah's vision, but it's talking about what she looked like, her outer appearance. It appears that at that time, culture had determined that the eyes were a mark of the beauty of a woman. And it appears that Leah didn't have attractive eyes, so she was out. When you seek a life partner who is attracted to you, you can suffer a lot of grief because of our understanding of beauty. Sometimes people will put more importance on, on outward beauty, even in the church, and, and it can happen that the true beauty of the inner self is not appreciated happens already in marriage, often it's forgotten. It also happens as we're, we're looking for a husband or a wife that we fail to see the beauty that Scripture describes. And so we see the devil hard at work, trying to mess things up, trying to make it difficult to obey. At the same time, Genesis 29 tells us that Rachel's physical attractiveness did not guarantee her happiness and her well-being in a healthy marriage either. Although she was more desirable to Jacob than Leah was because of her physical appearance, that physical beauty and attraction may also have hindered a meaningful and deeper relationship. Look at how Jacob asks for his wife in verse 21. He works seven years, he says to Laban, give me my wife, my time is complete and I want to lie with her. Before anything else, Jacob was thinking of sexual relations, physical relations with this beautiful sister, Rachel. Young women, do not underestimate this desire among men. Don't forget that Jacob was willing to work seven years to get the object of his desire into bed with him. And although we are not told that Jacob confused love and lust. We should be aware that even in the church, sadly, that natural attraction that God gave us, once perverted by Satan in the world, can lead to a lot of 
patient manipulation. There is suffering in our relationships. It is not a sin to marry someone because they are attractive, but we should not be naive and underestimate the effects of our highly sexualized culture, the daily encouragement to sexual promiscuity and the prevalence of pornography. And so we see, brothers and sisters, it's not easy to know what to do when we are seeking a godly husband or a godly wife. And as church, we, we definitely pray often for our young people, for our children, for those who are seeking godly husbands and godly wives. And we know ourselves, even in our marriages, that culture's expectations and our physical desires can cause a lot of grief. The effects of the fall. Satan's work to cheapen beauty and encourage lust and personal pride and self-love. They will often cause you to be tempted to just try take control of things for yourself, to ignore God's word, to tell your elders, never mind, I, I love a descendant of the seed of the serpent, or to repudiate marriage completely. If we took this passage out of the context, we would simply ask why this is happening in the church. Look at all this happening in the church. Why? Why should I bother fighting all the sins of my old nature in search of a godly Christian husband or a godly Christian wife? Why did Jacob stick to it? See that in our second point. In our text, we see that Jacob, Jacob, the bearer of the promise of the Messiah, he is seeking a wife among the seed of the woman, along the line of the promise, in order to keep the hope of salvation alive in the world. Behind Jacob, we see the, the weight of the promise of Genesis 3, verse 15, about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent. We see the grief and the, and, and the displeasure of Isaac and Rebekah over the pagan wives that Esau took for himself. We see the command of grandfather Abraham to Isaac, which Isaac then repeats to Jacob the, the generational command, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your father, Bethuel. It's Genesis 28, verse two. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. As he struggled with his own weaknesses and his own desires that so threatened to, to cheapen the, the, the marriage that God has given to man and to women, Jacob held fast to this desire, this goal, to share in the blessings of God, in the hope of the Messiah. It was his love for the promised Messiah that held him fast in his quest. It was his love for his Messiah. And to state it even clearer, it was Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself who was working through Jacob 
to carry his church through the generations until Mary, his mother, was born to two Jews in David's line hundreds of years later. Jacob's reason and goal in finding a wife among those who believed was the same as the Lord Jesus' reason for sending him out according to his father and mother's command. It was the future of the church. In this respect, Jacob's situation is unique and different from ours today because Christ is working through Jacob to bring his own birth, to bring about his own birth. At the same time, we know that Jacob's goal was not completely separate from our reasons for persevering in our task of finding a, a Christian man or woman to marry. Although Jacob was unique because Jesus Christ was using him as a tool to fulfill God's eternal plan in the birth of his son, our obedience to God's command for Christian marriage also has to do with participation in the plan of God for the church, the church that shares in the completed victory of Jesus Christ. We both obey because of our love for Jesus Christ and his church above everything else. Jacob obeyed for his love because of his love for the coming Messiah, and we because of our love for the Messiah who has come. Just as Jesus Christ was behind Jacob, so he is also behind us as individual members of his church. He ordained marriage and family as a way to preserve his church and salvation through the generations. And he continues to use marriage for this reason. Way at the beginning, right after the fall, God knew very well that sin had entered into the world to make marriage difficult. But he maintained his decision to build his church through families. Our Lord Jesus Christ, eternal King, our mediator, also reading Genesis 29, he knew about our culture. He knew about fallen man. He knew about the how much importance we place on ourselves. He knew and he knows the, the lust in our culture, the emphasis on outward beauty. He knows that when he told his church to be different from the world, but to work toward the next generation in marriage. And so we read Ephesians 5, where the Lord speaks to us, he tells us what that godly marriage looks like. And so we read Paul telling the church, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What does light have to do with darkness? The command comes also to us. And so we see what is our goal? Why do we do this? It's for our love for Jesus Christ and for his bride. It's our desire to see more people Glorifying God in the victorious kingdom of our Savior. And then when we think about it, we realize that the gifts of love 
that love is an emotion we feel in our hearts, the gift of attraction to beautiful people. These gifts were given to us not so that we waste our lives trying to find instant gratification at whatever cost, but for the sake of building the church through the generations, through godly marriage. And young people, that's the big difference between us and the world. The other day I had a ride with somebody, a shuttle, giving me a ride, and he said, I'm, I'm single and ready to mingle. And he talks about all his attempts and to satisfy his desires. It's a sad life. It was all his life. He didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't know the church. And then it makes us realize that the whole problem of the idea of dating, and especially when young people, very young people, start dating and having boyfriends and girlfriends, the whole problem is that the, that the idea of the church is forgotten. Teenagers and, and young people are just following their hearts. Sometimes we as parents even encourage, isn't that cute? What is the purpose of dating if it is not for marriage and lifetime companions as we seek to glorify God and strengthen his church? What is your view of marriage if you follow Esau's path and marry whoever you meet and marry to please your parents or marry to satisfy your own desires? You see, brothers and sisters, contrary to popular belief, also in our churches, marriage is not the goal. The church is the goal. We don't travel great distances, tolerate grief, and wait patiently for a godly man or woman, or, or in some cases even accept whoever is left because we idolize marriage so much. We don't do all that just so that we can be married as if marriage is a new God. But we marry with the goal of the church in mind. We marry because we love Jesus Christ and his bride. And when we put the church first, we also see that like Paul says, it would be better for some to be unmarried because then they can devote themselves full time to the kingdom. You see, the perspective of Paul here is his love for the church and how you can serve in the church. We can be thankful that God gives the strength to some to find their full fulfillment in God's kingdom and in his church without ever getting married. And we must certainly remember that it is not correct, brothers and sisters, to make marriage an idol, to idolize marriage. Sometimes we do that and sometimes we hurt our single brothers and sisters who are devoting their lives to the kingdom in other ways. Every member of the church wants to use his or her talents and gifts and, and opportunities for the well-being of the church. 
When we find we love a godly man or a woman in Christ's church, we, we know why God sent him into our lives. We praise him for this. And we pray that we may build each other up in our Christian faith, that we may serve his church faithfully as a team. And even the Lord willing, be given an opportunity to raise the next generation of Christ's church, the, the church in the 21st century. When Jacob obeyed the Lord when he put the church first, he left with God's guarantee. God said, I will be with you and you will return. The Lord told him he would watch over him and go with him wherever he would go. Jacob could hold on to that promise as he worked seven years for Rachel. He could hold on to that promise when he woke up in the morning and found Leah instead of Rachel. He could hold on to that promise when he faced a difficult ethical decision about whether to send Leah away or also to give her a chance to be a part of the next generation of God's church. And although we have many questions about Genesis 29, although we have to conclude that looking at all the people in this chapter, there are no role models, there are no examples, there is nothing we want to imitate and, and many of the outcomes are even condemned in other places in Scripture, behind it all, we see God speaking, I am with you. I am with you in the mess. I am with you when it is complicated. I am with you because I too love my church. And the Bible commands us to marry in the Lord and then takes the whole fairy tale out of marriage in our chapter that's so blunt and so honest. And then we need to hold on to the guarantee that God also gives to us. Ultimately, as a member of Christ's church, you as an individual have a place in God's plan for you. And as you seek to obey him, he is with you because he loves his church. And you know how he was with you? He understands. Jesus Christ was on this earth and you know who he talked to? He talked to adulterous people. He understood the heart of the prostitute. He saw and taught about divorce. He saw family strife. He saw brothers arguing. He knows about the grief. Our Lord knows it's not easy to obey. He hears your cries. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. He wept over the consequences of sin. He has a human nature in heaven. His incarnation, the fact that he came down to our earth is a guarantee that you, brother, you, sister, single or married, enjoying your life or facing hardship, you always have someone to talk to. You always have someone who truly understands, someone who knows exactly what is in your heart because he made your heart. Are you hurting because the search for a godly husband or a godly wife is not going well? Are you hurting and angry because of what has been done to you? Are you frustrated at, at the difficulty of this means that God has used to bring us to the next generation. Remember 
that God told Jacob he was with him. He would bring him through it all. Remember that Christ Jesus, our new mediator, that takes Jacob's place. He also guarantees that he will hear us and be with us. We sang about that in hymn 42. He's a great high priest. We can cry out to him. When our love for Christ's church, his bride, is joined to our love for our Savior Jesus Christ, then we can be sure that as he gathers, defends, and preserves his church, he is with us. And every one of us, we are heirs to eternal life. And so we sing it, Psalm 84, from strength to strength, God's people go until in Zion they at length appear before their God and Savior. And we humbly respond in prayer, young and old, parents, children, happily single, earnestly seeking, and married, O Lord God Almighty, since you will be with us as you have promised, we know that in all the weakness and grief of this life, your name will be glorified by each one of us as individuals and as your church throughout the generations. May we be faithful instruments in his hands. Amen. We'll now sing together, standing, if you're able to stand, exact words that were quoted. Psalm 84, stanzas 3 and 4. It's a psalm that speaks about how the Lord strengthens us to obey and to follow him and also how he brings his church from strength to strength, from one generation to the next until we all appear before the Lord in Zion. Psalm 84 stands as three and four standing if you're able to stand. <laughs>